Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this wonderful episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1979 in issues 27 and 28. Featured guests on this episode include... Mark McRae fills us in on Filmation's Adventures in Outer Space. Shocker John reminisces about the Battle of Galactica at Universal Studios Hollywood. Plus, the Black Hole. Buck Rogers. Wonder Woman. The Incredible Hulk. And more on this episode of... Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, telly who? Hey, my little biscuit. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be attending ShadowCon January 7th and 8th in Memphis, Tennessee. What do you love about ShadowCon, Cutie Pie? It was a lot of fun. What what I remember most was doing that auction. They always have an auction to raise money for the con. Yes, this is an annual convention. It's been going on for decades. And it's totally fan-run. And people, in order to finance parts of it, you clean out your closet and just randomly auction off things. And some of the things that show up there are totally amazing. Yeah, yeah, from, from little things to to big things. And I'm talking swords, comic book collections, like just costumes, all kinds of amazing things. Like you never know what you're going to see there. When they said of all the things at the convention, you have to experience the auction, they're not kidding. It is it is a fun just watching it, even if you're not looking for something, but you will be compelled to buy something. It was just a lot of fun and the way that and the way people were driving up prices, you know, because it's to raise money for the con. So they're willing to do it. Absolutely. Also, there's because it's an SCA con, but it has a little bit of bent to it. It's not just Society for Creative Anachronisms. Um, there's a lot of things there. There was some Tolkien. There was some sci-fi. There was a video game section. There were board games, tabletop games. When we went last time, it was it was such a unique experience to see live fighting in the atrium. Yeah, they had the SCA. They had sword fights going on, and it was it was pretty neat to watch. And, and of course, the gaming room was fun, and they they had panels there, so it was it was pretty nice. Every everything was just was just so amazing because it, you had all these fans that were so dedicated and so energetic, and of course, the cosplay. I mean, everything that you expect from a con, but it was just so much more. More fun because of all the people there and and what they created their 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 spirit their the way they enlivened the whole thing. I definitely recommend if you haven't been to Memphis, Tennessee in a while, this is one that you want to hit. ShadowCon. Starlog Magazine, issue number twenty-seven, cover date 
October 1979. Communications. Letters to Starlog. I read the article, Science Fiction Toys of the 80s, in issue number 24, and was wondering where I could find the Galactica model ship in the Nashville area. A friend of mine are planning to use it in a Super 8 film. That's from Brian Pruitt of Nashville, Tennessee. Starlog states, The article was a preview. Most of those toys will not be available until early fall. Electronic Battlestar Galactica may, in fact, never be produced. Well, Brian, there were no toy stores of the sort in Nashville in 1979, but there is now. I see toys. Nashville, Tennessee is focused on vintage toys. It has everything you could think of. Log Entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Alien Miniature Demolished. The Los Angeles opening of Alien was marked by misfortune when a miniature version of the film's star pilot was destroyed by fire. So this article talks about, unfortunately, vandals set this miniature ablaze. Oftentimes it's called not only the star pilot but the space jockey. But it was on display at Hollywood's Egyptian theater. And vandals took hold of it and burned it. That's terrible, and it's like such a tragedy. And why would people do something like that? Hot plastic. What's a foot and a half tall and ugly as sin with a prehensile tail and push-button-operated jaws? It's Kenner Toys Alien, licensed for manufacture from 20th Century Fox just in time for the Christmas season. Be the first on your block, coming soon to your local toy store. Tell you what, I remember seeing this at Bradley's when I was a kid. It was on the bottom shelf, and they're not kidding. That thing was big. It was huge. I was actually walking around it. I didn't even want to go near the box. It was so terrifying. And shortly after, it was taken off the shelves. His parents were saying, why in the world are you marketing a rated R movie alien to children? Yeah, very strange. I mean, they... <laughs> They just wanted to make money off it. They didn't care. Empire Progress. A Hollywood trade newspaper recently reported that music for the new Star Wars film The Empire Strikes Back might introduce a newcomer to epic scoring, Mick Jagger. Okay, so somehow there was a rumor going around at the time that Mick Jagger would be involved with making music for The Empire Strikes Back. So going the, the Flash Gordon route, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the representative from Lucasfilm comments on saying, no, we have no idea where that came from. John Williams will be scoring the film. And also, there was a report that Mick Jagger would be starring in The Black Hole or in Dino De Laurentiis' Dune. What is going on with all these Mick Jagger rumors going on at the time for him being involved in sci-fi? Well, maybe it was something he wanted to do. Maybe his publicist just put all that out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would see him later on in sci-fi, but not this soon. Glenn Larson, good news and bad news. The good news first. Isaac Asimov has been approached to write the script for the Battlestar Galactica telefilm planned for broadcast sometime during the coming television season. As Starlog goes to press, Dr. Asimov reports that he has completed an initial treatment and is now waiting for approval from Larson, Universal, and ABC 
before going ahead with the script. That's some things that fans were waiting for, is to find out if the rumor were true that Isaac Asimov would be involved in this project. Sad to say, even though he was secured, we know the fate of the show. Now for the bad news. NBC has scheduled Larson's Buck Rogers at 9 p.m. Thursdays, opposite Laverne and Shirley on ABC, and The Waltons on CBS. This is something that has cursed Glenn Larson projects for a while. I mean, one of the problems with Balsar Galactica is that it was going up against Archie Bunker's place. Even though Archie Bunker's place didn't have the draw that All in the Family did, it was a juggernaut with regard to family programming. And now another thing is happening to Buck Rogers. Remember how huge Laverne and Shirley was in the late 70s? Yes, I know. I mean, even though I wouldn't have had a problem watching Buck Rogers at that time, but I do remember later on Buck Rogers was up against Mork and Mindy. Now, I mean, that was fatal. I mean, Comics Invasion continues. While details are still being worked out, a number of other comics into film projects are showing signs of progress in the wake of the Superman success. So reports are coming in. Flash Gordon will be filming August with Max von Sydow as Magna Merciless. The film's producer, Dino De Laurentiis, has become involved in another long-awaited fantasy film project, Conan. Marvel Comics' Roy Thomas serving as story consultant. Popeye, originally announced to star Dustin Hoffman and Lily Tomlin, will soon start shooting under the direction of Robert Altman with Robin Williams as the super-powered sailor and Shelley Duvall as Olive Oil. Also, Annie and Greystoke are in the works for live theatrical films. Robin Williams as Popeye was great, even though that movie bombed. I loved it. I couldn't believe that it bombed because I loved it too. That's one of those movies like, I can't believe this isn't popular. I thought the same thing with Dick Tracy in 1990. It's amazing that that did not live up to financial expectations. Hey everyone, this is Mark McRae, and I have the absolute pleasure of previewing and talking about the Filmation series that premiered in 1979 that were originally written about in Starlog magazine, issue 27. And so there were three big ones for Filmation that year. Flash Gordon, the animated series, Jason of Star Command, which was live action, and Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll. But let's talk about Flash Gordon first, because that was a big one for for Filmation Studios. And the article talks about the Flash Gordon movie premiering in the fall of 1979, but actually that movie did not premiere until 1982 in prime time. I'm not exactly sure why there was a delay, but the movie itself is pretty spectacular and is considered one of Filmation's finest animated moments on the screen. Uh, the series received a $40,000 a cash infusion from Dino De Laurentiis uh, because Dino De Laurentiis was working on the live-action Flash Gordon movie that would premiere in 1980. And he was working with Filmation, um, helping Filmation with their animated production. And the two studios were also sharing uh, costume designs. Uh, so that was pretty cool, too. And Dino De Laurentiis's 
40,000 cash infusion really made a big difference with that Flash Gordon movie, which is called Flash Gordon, The Greatest Adventure of Them All. And there was a lot of interesting uh, technology advances happening at the Filmation Studio where that movie benefited from, which I'll get into when I read some quotes from the actual uh, Starlog magazine issue. But... Flash Gordon, the animated series, did premiere in 1979. Uh, the series did not, the series sort of struggled in the ratings because it was a very faithful adaptation of the original Flash Gordon serials that ran in the 1930s featuring Buster Crab. And a lot of the, a lot of the themes and the storylines were very adult, which probably drove off the younger audience, which is, you know, Saturday morning's bread and butter. You know, with the advertisers as well as to have that young audience watching. And if they're not watching, that means that the network as well as the advertisers are not making a lot of money. But the series managed to survive. Um, the second year Flash Gordon, they brought in a sidekick, a little dragon character, uh, hope, hoping that that character would appeal more to kids. And I'll be honest with you, I'm... I just feel like having a little dragon character didn't work for the series, but I digress. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of the technological uh, advances that Filmation made for this particular movie, which was pretty cool. And so the writer of the article says that three-dimensional clay models were made of the principal characters. And so the animators were able to do three-dimensional views of the characters that can be accomplished. Um, they also did rotoscoping, tracing outlines around live footage onto animation cells. Now, this had also been a key uh, technology move by Filmation going way back to 1973 when, uh, when Filmation did the adaptation, the animated version of Star Trek. They actually rotoscoped the Enterprise ship. And then later, Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle was heavily rotoscoped and helped CBS in the ratings to a number one victory. So it was really cool that a lot of this new technology was being used. And typically, this type of technology was, you know, only used by Disney and other Marvel studios for, you know, uh, full animation uh, to test animation sequences in pencil prior to committing them to cells and paint you know, in the, in the test stage. But the writer goes on to say that Filmation had a new videotape system that permitted the studio to do instant replay of pencil tests. And the system was used extensively on, on Flash Gordon. And uh, there's a lot, there was a lot of talk about all the things that they did. Like there was even 3D effects when I was watching uh, the movie, although it wasn't truly 3D. Um, the writer of the article from Starlog goes on to say, possibly the most innovative system, though, was the one used for animating the spaceships, which really looked cool. A motion control camera setup, uh, like the one used in Star Wars and most, re most uh, recent films, was used to photograph fully constructed miniatures of ships and the aircrafts. These models were white with black grid lines and were photographed against a black background like the X-Wings and the TIE Fighters in Star Wars. The Flash Gordon ship zooms towards and away from the camera, bankroll turn, etc., and perform wild actions that would be totally impossible to animate from scratch. 
And so that's pretty cool too. And it was also discovered, the writer goes on to say, that with the use of the motion control camera, long dollies and zooms could be added to portions of painted scenes. In one of the outstanding sequences, Earth grows menacingly large in the sky beyond the towers of Ming City on Mongo as the planets rush together of a, for a collision course. And what's really cool, when Earth and Mongo are like very close together and it's causing earthquakes and tidal waves, it's like one of the best animated scenes in the movie. Um, you should check it out. Uh, Flash Gordon, The Greatest Adventure of All is... Actually, um, you can, you know, see it on YouTube and uh, check it out. There may be some uh, subtitles uh, because this film is very rare and it's very hard to find. And because Dino De Laurentiis also has uh, an investment in the movie, there are some rights issues tied up. The Filmation Library is currently owned by DreamWorks and um, they don't necessarily have everything that Filmation produced. All right. So, moving right along to Jason the Star Command. And so, Jason the Star Command actually premiered in 1978, part of Tarzan and the Super 7. And Tarzan and the Super 7, you know, featured Tarzan, of course, but also featured other superhero animated segments, such as Manta and Murray, who were sort of like Aquaman and Mera, um, Super Stretcher Micro Woman, who were the first African-American crime-fighting married couple to show up on TV. And then, of course, there was Jason of Star Command. And it was live action, and it featured uh, Sid Hag uh, playing the villain, Dragos. Uh, I saw Sid Hag at a convention uh, in 2012. It was pretty cool. I didn't go up and talk to him, but it was nice to see him. And uh, Jason uh, was sort of was like a, a Flash Gordon a series. It was they had a lot of uh, cliffhanger episodes, and uh, uh, every week Jason would you know get into a lot of trouble. So the following year, though, they decided Jason got sp and spun off on its own uh, in 1979, and the network ordered 12 episodes. And at the time, it was the most expensive live action kid show on the air. Uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, CBS and Filmation had a had a great had a great uh, relationship, business relationship, and because Filmation delivered number ones uh, series and shows for the network, they used that as a bargaining chip to get bigger budgets for a lot of their cartoons and live action series. Because Filmation was the only studio keeping all the animation and live action in America, and when you have an animation studio and you're sending your work overseas, you obviously are going to get more bang for your buck. But if you're anima animating in the U.S., there's no way you can compete with animation studios animating overseas. And so you have to ask for a bigger budget in order to make your cartoon compete with, with everyone else. And CBS was very competitive, and they wanted to keep their uh, network uh, number one. And uh, so the series was overseen by a gentleman named Arthur Nadell, who's mentioned in the article. I knew Arthur Nadell. He was an early mentor to me 
during my early days when I was trying to, you know, break into the business and a uh, really super nice guy. And uh, Jason of Star Command uh, also features uh, Tamara Dobson, who played Cleopatra Jones. And, and um, oh, and of course, the star of Jason was an actor named uh, Craig Leiter, um, who played uh, Jason. Uh, the actor also was featured in some Grey Poupon uh, commercials much later, um, which is pretty cool. Mighty Mouse in Space was the next uh, series that was featured in Starlog magazine in, in 1979. And um, so it was pretty cool. It was uh, the, the writer goes on to say it was a new show for CBS uh, that uh, he says that might attract as many big kids as little kids. And some of the comic book favorites have been resurrected and streamlined for an hour show featuring Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll and a familiar duck whose name was uh, Quackula. Now, there's a backstory with Quackula as well. A, an artist animator named Scott Shaw created a similar character that was like Quackula. And he actually took Filmation to court over it. It was one of those crazy coincidences where Filmation had no idea that the Scott Shaw character existed. Um, but anyway, so Quackula ended up having to be pulled, um, unfortunately. But the um, the series also resurrected Harry the Heartless, which who was a um, who was a a villain that Mighty Mouse had to take out a couple of times, as well as uh, Queen Pearl Pureheart, who was Mighty Mouse's a uh, love interest. Uh, she was brought back, and uh, and this show was pretty cool. And um, the animation was pretty good as well. And I love this adaptation of Mighty Mouse. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so 1979, Filmation really had it going on. And the writer is so funny because he says, Filmation seems hell-bent on making it difficult to sleep late on Saturdays. And I just love that. And just as a, as a postscript, uh, Filmation would end up leaving Saturday morning television to produce one of the biggest hits of all time, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, where the studio would receive bigger budgets and have a lot more creative freedom. The studio became much more successful after they went into the syndicated market. And so that's it. Pretty big year for for Filmation in 1979, and I'm so happy that Starlog magazine, uh, you know, put everything in black and white and print, and this is Mark McRae. I am so happy and glad that I was a part of reporting on what Filmation was doing in animation as well as technology for 1979. Where comedy and commentary collide. Thunder Talk brings a unique variety show style twist to the fandom podcast genre. We drop music from some of today's hottest up-and-coming artists. We discuss topics, social and political relevance, and deliver our sideways take on the world at large. If stand-up comedy, NPR, the Millennium Falcon, and classic MTV had a baby, it would be Thunder Talk. Thunder Talk is part of the ESO Network. Find us at thundertalk.org and on all podcasting platforms. Battlestar Galactica, 
you can't quite call it a wrap. So this is an entire yellow page insert in this issue of Starlog that gives not only some background and some history of Battlestar Galactica, but also an episode guide for Season 1, which was the only season of Battlestar Galactica. And what's unique about these issues that have this yellow page insert is that you can actually pull it out, keep the rest of the color portions of the magazine in mint condition, but you can keep the insert by your television so you always have something to guide you by, and you can actually make a folder with all the different inserts. What a great idea for the time, because we didn't have the internet, we didn't have any other resource that would tell us about the episodes of sci-fi shows. Those inserts were so cool back then. And, and you know, it was just an easy reference. Just pull it out and look at it. So, Battlestar Galactica, giving us some history here about Glenn Larson actually had this idea going long before Star Wars. As much as the show is credited for the Star Wars phenomena in 1977, he actually started developing these ideas shortly after Star Trek ended this, its air on television in 1969. That's interesting. So he had the, yeah, this great sci-fi idea way back then, but he just couldn't do it until after Star Wars was popular. And that's the thing, because producers did not want to make science fiction television in general because it was just so costly. That was the problem with the genre, is because you could hardly use sets that were already built. Westerns were popular at the time, crime dramas were popular, even period pieces. There were sets already available for period pieces. But to tell a studio that in order to make our science fiction show, you have to build everything from scratch and you can't cross-use it with other productions, it was very difficult for studios to swallow that. But when Star Wars came along, Universal picked up on this idea and realized they could possibly have a huge hit on their hands. Yeah, after after a time, then they realized, well, it, it's worth spending the money because we can make a lot of money on this. Mm-hmm. Merchandisers had already tapped onto it as well. In fact, the merchandise for Battlestar Galactica was released just before the television series to build anticipation for it. And the advantage of that was that the model kits were being made. And so what the producers did on certain scenes and on certain levels... They end up going to the store, buying some model kits, and using those model kits for the Cylon discs in the show itself. So they use the merchandising to actually help out cutting costs, because on average, each episode cost a million dollars. And so you said you had some of the merchandising for this. We did. My brother and I had the action figures. Didn't have any of the model kits, but the action figures were of that of that time period, the scale, three and three quarter inches. That was once Star Wars started that scale, as opposed to dolls with removable clothing, that became the standard. And we had quite a few of those action figures. The merchandising was endless, just like everything else of that time period, whether it be posters, bed sheets. Uh, we have some friends that collect vintage Battlestar Galactica memorabilia. Hamish and Leslie, when we went over their house for Halloween, remember the, their latest acquisition? Oh yeah, the Battlestar Galactica sleeping bag. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean, but nowadays, you know, you've got the reboot show that that also um, renewed popularity for the old show as well. It did, it did. It, it actually took in younger people and a more modern science fiction fan base to go back and to appreciate the original Battlestar Galactica series. So the three-hour pilot movie about the near annihilation of the human race 
by the cybernetic Cylons was played in theaters in Europe, Japan, and Canada. And it was interesting that it took that form of some people in the world saw it as a movie and others watched it on TV. Now, I've never seen this in the movie theater. We were ones that watched it on TV growing up. Yeah, I remember it on TV, and I was surprised, you know, to read in Starlog that it was a movie. And we know that, yes, it was a popular show, but in order to renew another contract to keep the budget up to the standards that it was, it couldn't be just a popular show. It had to be one of the most popular shows. It had to be like a top three or top five show. And unfortunately, it wasn't that high of a ratings to warrant that much of a budget. So it only lasted one season. And I think it, that's part of the reason they had Lauren Green, because he was popular. So they, they thought he could bring in more people, too, even though, even though it was science fiction. Maybe all of these Western fans w- would come and watch, but they still didn't quite get enough people. It's so funny, because my grandfather, when we'd sit down and watch it together, he'd say, Ah, oh, there's Lauren Green from Bonanza. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, that was his standard of who Lauren Green was. And I didn't watch I really hated Westerns as a kid. My grandfather would watch all the John Wayne shows and stuff like that, and I would just walk out of the room. I, it just wasn't my thing. I was so glad that I wasn't a kid in the 50s or 60s because I'd be doomed because that's, that's all it was on TV back then. And I remember because I didn't watch Bonanza, but I knew who Lauren Green was. I mean, And he was, was on the Purina popular. commercials. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> but that was one of the problems was because he was such a known star, his bankroll was the largest out of all the cast. Sure, and and one of the reasons it was expensive too. And the interesting thing is if you look at the series as a whole and you look at all the multi-parters, it actually breaks down to 12 Battlestar Galactica movies with some individual episodes filtered in. And I think that's one of the special things to me about Battlestar Galactica, especially as an adult viewer, is because it had the longer story arcs. When you have two or three consecutive episodes telling a story, it really gives the series more of a grandeur idea, something that wasn't as popular during the time of episodic television. Which really became a lot more popular in in modern times. But back then... Yeah, we loved seeing that because it was something different. I like that this article gives us a glossary of terms for Battlestar Galactica, such as ragtag fleet. Those would be vehicles carrying surviving humans away from Cylons. Yeah, I thought that was pretty neat, that list in the magazine. Uh, one thing was it, it still doesn't have the, the time units, though, Centon and Yaron and all those. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's the list of expressions. Cut through the Felder garb, which means eliminate the bull. <laughs> <laughs> or how about frack? Which I really didn't even remember they had on the old one because they made it so popular on the new one. It became hugely popular <laughs> on, on the reboot one. Yeah. yeah. How about sniff plant vapors? Well, that's similar to taking drugs. How about jar my chips? Means shake me up. Or this is one of my favorites. For Sagan's sake means for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Has an entire section on Mattel's Galactica toys. We, we mentioned a little bit about the action figures. But they really started label slapping a lot of things with regards to pistols, electronic games. Uh, so they went half and half with 
regards to making new items or repackaging just general sci-fi toys and putting a Battlestar Galactica label on it. I remember having my brother got the Colonial Warrior large size action figure and had a button where you press it to make his laser light up and it looked like no one in the show. And the reason being is because the toy producers didn't want to create a new mold so they just took an old toy that they had and repainted it, put it in a Battlestar Galactica package. But it just looked like a general like just general guy with white hair, like just no no outstanding features, didn't even have the clothing that the Colonial Warriors were wearing. Wow. I was so confused as a kid because I'm like, who is this? My cousin had the large size Cylon and we had the large size Colonial Warrior. And it was just so confusing. I, I really hate it when toy companies cheap out like that. But But it was a common thing for toy companies to just reuse molds. Yeah, just to save money. They they just think, oh, the kids won't care. They won't notice. But we cared. Also, a section about Battlestar Galactica comic books. Jim Shooter says, Stales have been holding steadily so far, but the theatrical movie and the television repeats have continued to promote the book. And see, that's what I say. I, we were those kids that if you had product dealing with either the movie or television series, I was more apt to watching the series if I had the other things to supplement my understanding of it. I love the Walt Simonson artwork in those issues. It was fantastic. You're not kidding, because Walt was known for working on Star Wars as well. He had that ability to draw technical detail. His cosmic scenes were amazing. I totally agreed there. So this episode guide that's included, it's actually like an IMDB. It tells you who the writers were, who the stars were, as well as in giving a breakdown of the episode. Totally a must if you were a kid in the 70s. This is Freya of the Battlestar Raven, the flagship chapter of the Battlestar Galactica fan club. Whenever I want to listen to more information about BSG and other classic sci-fi, I tune into Starpod Log. So say we all! An early glimpse into the black hole. So this article is about this brand new Walt Disney movie. And it makes it clear. Walt Disney's name will not be in the opening credits. And this will be the first ever PG rated Walt Disney movie. And at that time, that was unheard of. So they were trying to make a more mature movie. Why do you think Disney jumped into making something of this scale with regard to science fiction. It was because of Star Wars. Art, so let's think about this. Disney wanted to jump in, get, get some more cash, which we are unapologetic capitalists. We get it. So they wanted to make money off of the Star Wars phenomena. They wanted to piggyback off of it. Other studios had something science fiction based. Or they acquired something science fiction based, whether it be a comic book series, a novel series. Disney said, let's make our own. And that's what this article talks about is the process of creating their own science fiction film from scratch. The funny thing is, let's forward it nearly 50 years later. Instead of building their own sci-fi Star Wars, what did Disney do? 
they acquired Star Wars, <laughs> which worked out much better for them. <laughs> I mean, their their uh, foray into this the sci-fi live action thing did not pan out well. On numerous occasions, it didn't, and so this is giving us some behind the scenes workings of what they tried to do, and it said they wanted to get actors and production people who knew what they were doing. And yes, they did get some production people that were amazing, uh, especially Peter Ellenshaw, the artists working on some mats. I mean, there's there's some scenes in the movie that are breathtaking, but they wanted to get some actors that were known, such as Anthony Perkins and Ernest Borgnine. As a kid, did you ever say, boy, I can't wait to see Ernest Borgnine in a movie? <laughs> no, I mean, see, the, these were classic actors that that older people knew. Kids at that time didn't know these actors. It's one of the things we have to laugh about because, believe it or not, growing up in Hamden, Connecticut, we lived just a few blocks away from Ernest Borgnine's home. So, and you I, knew that when you were a kid. My father told us about it all the time. My father used to go to the bar where Ernest Borgnine would drink, <laughs> and so yeah, it was called Gag's Place. Uh, it used to be on Dixwell Avenue. It's 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 not there anymore. But that's the funny thing is that if you were a Hamden resident, you knew about Ernest Borgnine. And right now, if you go to Hamden, Connecticut, you could visit an area called Ernest Borgnine Park. So interesting. Yeah. So as a kid, I knew who Ernest Borgnine was. But I guess they were they could have also been thinking that parents would take their kids because the parents wanted to see these actors. See, that's more the mindset because if you look at Star Wars, my grandfather when we go see Star Wars movies, he didn't call Obi-Wan Kenobi Obi-Wan. He called him Alec Guinness. That's the only actor and him and Peter Cushing. Yeah, Those are the yeah. only two that he knew by name. Everything else he said they were, those were all new faces. So, yeah, I do get the mentality behind it to a degree, uh, but I think they went a little bit overboard. We'll, we'll talk about it later, especially the merchandising. I mean, no kid says, Mommy, Mommy, please get me that Ernest Borgnine doll. <laughs> <laughs> What's really strange about this article is that this is an early glimpse into the black hole, but it talks about the end scene. It says, the escape scene we hear is the climax of the climax. This monstrously large deep space platform, Cygnus, has ventured too near a black hole and is literally being pulled apart by its forces. Those hoping to escape propel themselves weightless through twisting corridors where girders and trusses are warping and snapping all around. Now, why in the world, at a preview of a movie article, would you expose how it's ending. Very strange. Spoiler alert, right? Yeah. That's well, a, well yeah, now that's what they do. They say spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, there's a few pictures in the article showing the ship as well as some of the faceless and humanoids. So it totally looks awesome. I remember the first time my brother and I heard of the black hole coming out. We looked at it and said, oh, we have to see this movie. It's got to be good. Just just look look at this Maximilian. Oh, he looks so menacing. Well, and yeah, and this article hypes it up so much that they make it sound like it's going to be great. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure Disney was hoping on it. Yeah, they're comparing it to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea because they had people involved in that movie, involved in this. And that really was fantastic. I love the visual effects of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Product of his time, but it still stands up today. It was brilliant. 
And and so here here they're also saying that um that they use Nemo, a version of him in the movie in the black hole. Yes. And even admitting that they have a R two D two esque robot. <laughs> yeah, you know that was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's funny that the article is totally looking at all the things and how it parallels to other movies. As if to say, Disney can't think of anything to do on its own, so let's just take pieces of different popular properties and mash it together. Yeah, but you might as well say it, because you know everyone's going to notice. <laughs> Mattel's Battlestar Galactica Collection. You can imagine the Imperious Leader commands the Cylon Centurion to capture Daggett. Make Daggett lead us to the humans. You can imagine Daggett fears Ovion, the enemy with insect arms. Lieutenant Starbuck. Yes, Commander Adama. Prepare for secret mission. Each figure sold separately. Daggett, Imperious Leader, Cylon Centurion, and Ovion. Each figure sold separately. Not for use with other Battlestar Galactica toys. New from Mattel. Starlog Magazine, issue number 28. Cover date, November 1979. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Ellen Shaw honored by Museum of Modern Art. Peter Ellenshaw became the first motion picture artist to be honored with a solo gallery exhibition at New York's Museum of Modern Art when Peter Ellenshaw, special effects artist, opened September 17th. Well, this is part of the Disney publicity scheme, getting the artwork from the black hole to be portrayed in a quote-unquote legitimate showcase. And you have to say, the artwork that... Ellen Shaw does for the black hole is stunning. Yeah, it was brilliant. So it so it is good that people could see it in a museum. If it, it was something like the, this, yeah. I would go to it. Oh yeah, yeah, like the best thing from that movie that was the art. Alien, the exhibit. Publicist Charles Lippincott reports that Alien fans who are interested in examining some of the sets, props, and architectural models constructed for the 20th Century Fox blockbuster are cordially invited to visit San Francisco's Museum of Science and Industry and Chicago's Museum of the same name. Okay, so we see that this is becoming a thing now, where Hollywood is trying to tap into museums to expose science fiction art. Yeah, they're not doing that now, are they? I really wish they would. The of course, you, yeah, thing, you have to be in that area, though, to, but, to but see it. We did go up to Cincinnati to see the Star Wars exhibit. We did, and and that was fun. Yeah, that was at the since it was at Cincinnati Museum, the one that looks like the Hall of Justice. Yeah. So it, it's just so rare that it happens, and when it does happen, it's a national tour usually. But we're seeing back-to-back science fiction artwork being showcased. And, you know, we know the the artwork from Alien is incredibly stunning. I I mean, back then, though, you still couldn't, like, you didn't get to see as many pictures of it like you can now on the Internet. It was more of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime. You stopped what you were doing, and you would totally travel for something like this if you were a sci-fi fan. And you had to pay to see it in a museum, too. Yes. Hi, this is Gil Gerard. I played Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Kavora's beautiful. And you're listening to Star Pod Log. Buck Rogers in the 25th century. 
NBC and Universal have high hopes for the latest gamble to bring top-budget science fiction spectacle to television. So we know the story about Buck Rogers, how it was initially started out thought to be a television series, but it was filmed in the format of a motion picture. Now, when we got to meet Gil Gerard on numerous occasions, he always stresses that he knew from the beginning, he saw some insight that this was going to be a motion picture because he realized the format that it was being filmed. So he didn't believe that it was going to be a made-for-television movie. He said he knew it was going to be a, a motion picture. And he actually corrects fans when they call it the pilot. He prefers it to be called the motion picture. Well, yeah, that's essentially what it was, even though most of us saw it on TV. Yes. And and not in theaters. Because it was in select theaters. I remember as a kid, I had the, the poster that I got from Burger King, and I had that hanging up forever. So, I mean, they were promoting it. Yeah, and it's just amazing that it um, it became more popular on TV. They So they, they changed their mind and made it a TV series. Even the, And even with the TV series, they did several two-hour episodes. Correct, and that's what this article talks about is the problems with Battlestar Galactica. They realized, the, the Universal Studios, that they want to have science fiction on television, but... They had to compromise. They had to work something out where the budget wasn't so inflated, but they wanted to make it exciting and a spectacle. They didn't want Buck Rogers to be limited to a movie screen, whereas the plan was to have it as a series. And really, when when I was watching it, I always thought it was big budget. It, I it, did. It looked pretty big budget to me. I I love. Well, see, when it came to this, is how you and my brother had had more of the same mindset. We both watched, all of us watched both, Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. I leaned far more on the Battlestar Galactica side, whereas you and John, as much as you like Battlestar Galactica, you like Buck Rogers better. Yes. Now, why is that? For the, um, I mean, it had brighter costumes. I mean, just looking at the scenery, it was, you, you know, Battlestar Galactica might have looked more realistic. It looked more lived in, and it was it had the brown, the more of the brown colors, earth and tones, I, yeah. and, seri- and serious themes. I think it, too. it did. Yeah, Buck Rogers was more campy. Had the the bright and colorful settings and costumes. Had the um the 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 cutting remarks from Buck and Tweaky. <laughs> yeah, I think Buck was more fun. It, it was, and it yeah, it was made to be more fun. And what was the focal point of the show for you? It was Buck, yeah. <laughs> and the article mentions that. It says that the show's principal aspect is no mystery. It's Gil Gerard. He's going to be a major star. He just hasn't had the right vehicle so far. And Buck Rogers fits him like a glove. He's James Gardner, Burt Reynolds, all those people, given the chance. <laughs> well, that's funny. Yeah, but and Gil Gerard never really became that famous, and he he didn't do another hit series after this. I mean, can you imagine now, it's just saying, at the time, James Gardner and Burt Reynolds were, were huge stars. They were. They yeah, were big comparing, stars. Yeah. My mother always liked James Gardner. She always mentioned that. Burt Reynolds, I mean, this is the time of Smokey and the Bandit. It was. And so, and so Burt Reynolds was always, you know, the handsome lead. James Gardner was known more for his comedic acting, or somewhere between, like, being able to do dramas, but also yes. a comedian. I mean, that's, that's kind of like what Gil Gerard is. He's drama, but throws in some goofy the, the stuff. The funny lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the way the show was written. <laughs> exactly. But so he's able to do that. But here's the funny thing, a little, little tidbit about Burt Reynolds. 
the number one movie of 1977 was Star Wars. That's yeah. duh. We know that. Do you know what the number two most popular movie of the year was? What? Guess what? It wasn't Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It was Smokey and the Bandit. So in a world without Star Wars, Smokey and the Bandit would have been the number one movie of 1977. Interesting. <laughs> well, well, you know, it appeals to a different audience. Everybody likes Smokey and the Bandit. You I know, mean, and it, I was telling my my aunt took me to see that movie because she, <laughs> you know, she was a big Burt Reynolds fan. Yeah. I can imagine little you sitting in the movie theater saying, "What is going on here?" Well, so, I liked it too. No, oh, I liked the movie. We liked it as a kid, but the funny thing is, when you watch it as an adult, you realize how many things that were way over our heads as kids. How many innuendos were there? Right, there was How stuff that was just for adults. Were there? <laughs> just the, some of the dialogue, yeah. It totally was, totally was, yeah. But here's the thing: is that they they used Bowser Galactica as a learning tool. They said, "What do we do wrong? Let's not repeat those wrong things with Buck Rogers." And I think that's great. And I think there there is space for both of them because Bowser Galactica was so serious. They purposely wanted to add some humor into the show, make it lighthearted. And I think that's one of the charms of Buck Rogers. And Buck Rogers was, they used a few of the things from Battlestar Galactica, the physical, the, some of the sets and thing and props. It makes sense. And that has been going on for decades. You look at The Wizard of Oz. There's, in my opinion, that is the most classic of all movies. Love Wizard of Oz. But if you were to break down where the props of Wizard of Oz were in other motion pictures after Wizard of Oz... It's in dozens upon dozens of things. Even some of the most iconic features, such as the Wicked Witch's crystal ball, they reused these items. They didn't put it up to auction. They didn't put it in personal collections. That wasn't a thing of the time. Movie studios had storehouses, and they would repurpose items. And so it makes sense that they would do that for Battlestar Galactica, using it in Buck Rogers. It also mentions that they want to have reoccurring villains, but they don't want to overuse them. You could say that's about right. They they always brought back Ardala, but and they planned not on too that many from times. the beginning. Yeah, which, yeah, which makes sense. We wanted to see some come back. We didn't want it to be just a monster of the week show, which it wasn't. Well, they didn't really use makeup for monsters, or except maybe the space vampire was about the only one. And they did have some where they put cybernetic features on people, masks. So they did things to make the adversaries. More iconic, more sci-fi looking. But but that's something it that kind of shared with Battlestar Galactica. Most of the characters were human, or at least looked human. And they purposely are making some sort of tension between Wilma Deering and Buck Rogers. It says they want to be partners a bit like Barbara Bain and Martin Landau on Mission Impossible. There's always that subsurface suggestion that something was going on when we weren't looking. There will be other romantic interests for both Buck and Wilma. What do you think about that dynamic between Buck and Wilma? I thought it was good. What what we saw on the show was just, it was a good working relationship and a friendship. And I never really uh, saw them as, as having romantic interest in each other. I mean, that you know, what the article talks about, maybe they thought about that at one time, but it mm-hmm. never really showed in the mm-hmm. scripts. And see, that's what I liked about it, too. It wasn't a mushy show. There were times that Buck... I mean, Buck was like Captain Kirk, essentially. He had some, you know, female friends, but he he didn't really get that romantically involved with women on this show. That's another reason, like, you can see how it was more of a kid's show. Didn't have as much of the romance. But he did have elements of schmoozing the ladies. 
taking his shirt off. There, there was that, yeah. And and the fact that Ardala was interested in him. That was a big one. Yeah. I love those episodes. But but they and and the article does talk about how Wilma was sort of she was more militaristic in the in the theatrical, the pilot, as we call the first episode. Mm-hmm. And then they softened her more, which was good. I'm glad they did. They realized that being that hard-nosed really would be difficult to watch week after week. It would, yeah. And she, but she still stayed a tough woman. She, she was still very competent and confident. So they, they still, I think they did her character well. Agreed. Colonial Viperian Quadrant intercepting. Stand by to attack. Captured by the Cylons, the Battle of Galactica at Universal Studios. For this segment, I'm going to bring on the show my brother, John, who is also the host of the Shocking Things podcast. Welcome, John. How are you doing, AR? (laughs) Now, Now, the reason why I have to bring you on this segment is because of the fact that we went on this attraction as kids at Universal Studios. Yeah, I believe it was 1985, correct? Does that sound right? Yeah, I know it was the mid-80s, which by that time, Battlestar Galactica had long been off the air. And there are certain people that knew what it was, but not exactly. So it was kind of past its prime by this time. And I'm, I'm actually surprised that it lasted as long as it did. I mean, this is 1979 when it opened up this attraction. And, and this article is really gives us some insight for, for for I mean we grew up in Connecticut and thinking about even when I was a kid California was like a different planet away I never thought that we'd be able to go there and and to go go to Disney go to Universal Studios what do you remember about the first time we went to Universal Studios in California and, and by that time there was only one it was only California. Yeah, so 1985, I believe that's when it was. Uh, one of the biggest uh, things they were pushing at the time, if you remember, the Transformers cartoon. They had a whole little right. kiosk set up with uh, actors dressed up. Not you know, people they're younger thinking the new Transformers. No, this is the original Transformers cartoon. So you had actors dressed up. Uh, you know, very impressive costumes at the time, and you could uh, take a picture on top of a giant Megatron. We had a picture of that, yep. Um, what else? The, you could see the A-Team van. That was one of the things I remember. Because that uh, was Night Universal Raider production. Kit. Yes, yes. So they're, you know, they're promoting all their own productions. And to us, this was like, this is amazing to see all this in person. And I think the big difference between the 70s Universal Studios and the 80s Universal Studios is by the 80s, they wanted to compete with other theme parks, so they were pulling in other franchises. Do you remember they even took Paramount's Star Trek and had an attraction? Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah, later on they did that, the Star Trek experience. Yes. Uh, but but if we look at, at the 1970s Universal Studios, it, it was so much focused on the, the production of actual movies and television shows. It was less of a focus on rides and more of – the experience of actually being on the back lots of everything that we loved. Like you were really on the set of Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, Battlestar. Now, uh, Battlestar Galactica, there were some back lot scenes, but the focal point was the movie making process, not Mm -hmm. so much rides. Would you say that's a fair assessment? 
Yeah, they tried to show you behind the scenes of, you know, how movies are made. And uh, to us, this was amazing. We had no idea, you know, how involved it was. Uh, mm-hmm. You have, like, water coming towards you, uh, and you think you're going to get uh, submerged in water, but it shows how it just passes through. So, yeah, no, it, it was really, really incredible. Now, you've been to the park numerous times, both in Florida and California. How would you say – the California park has changed over the decades from early on to, to what it's like modern day. So the last time I went, I think was 2015 to California and it's similar to a degree, but it's still, it's very different from, uh, you know, the seventies and eighties experience. You still have the tram ride, but you don't see, there's obviously no more Bowser Galactica. Uh, that's completely gone. Uh, they have a, a bridge you used to go over that was in the uh, $6 million man. The bridge is still there, but you don't go over that and that would collapse. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, the last time I went, they had a King Kong experience you go through instead. So you go through, it's a, it encompasses the entire tram, like a big giant, uh, movie screen you're going through and it has like King Kong and dinosaurs fighting, uh, right next to you and above you. Uh, oh, no, see, they, that's really different because I went – the last time I went to Universal Studios was when it was just King Kong. Okay, and that was the animatronic it's, King Kong, correct? Yes, yes. So they, instead of that, they got rid of that, and it's now it's all it's, you know, like a 3D type of uh, you know projection. Oh, that's curious because I know that there's what they call it like the, the seven – the seven curse on Universal Studios. Every year that ends in the seven, there's a fire. Okay. In 1977, 1987, 1997. And so one of those sevens, it might have been 97, is when the King Kong ride got caught on fire. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's curious that that changed now. So this this article is mainly about the backlot tour. And I remember the backlot tour years ago was extensive. Like that was the absolute focal point of Universal Studios to see the Psycho House, to see the Jaws attraction, to see all the different uh, the parting of the water from the Ten Commandments. Do they still have that? I'm not sure if the, if that's in there that I recall. But a lot of that stuff was super dated. Yes, it was even dated by the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. So I could see why they wanted to keep up with things. This article specifically talks about the attraction for Balsar Galactica. Now, they put all this money into this attraction, and the show only lasted one year. Yes, yeah. It says uh, how it's, it was $1 million an episode. for Back at that time period, that was a lot of money for a Balsar Galactica episode, and that's why the other Glenn Larson projects, they he did Galactica 1980 and Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Uh, because that was canceled due to budgetary reasons. I know the ratings were great on Bowser Galactica, but they did these other, the other Glenn Larson projects to keep the sci-fi going, but a much, much smaller budget. It, it, of course, it was, it was a, and Glenn Larson's a genius. He ended up doing things years later that Knight Rider. Mm-hmm. He 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 kept the things going that that we very much enjoyed. But this ride was so unique because. It was Universal Universal Studios was the only amusement park in the world outside of Disneyland that had animatronics. Yes. It's because of this attraction. So I, I, I never thought about it in that sense. Yeah, I know it mentions that in the article 
in the uh, the Starlog article that we're referring to, uh, it has a, a certain term for them. What does it call it? Like robot actors is what they, they call yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, there's 20 of them, if I'm not mistaken, that are uh, that were in the ride. Now, for those who want to see what this attraction was like, it is on YouTube. And also, in the movie The Nude Bomb, there was a segment where they're in Universal Studios and they're going on, on the whole tram experience. So let's talk about the nude bomb. We have, yes. we have to at least mention it if we're talking about this article. Yeah, what do you think about as a kid? Mark. I'm sorry. I just want to say if anybody – if you want to watch the movie, you watch the whole movie. If you don't have time, you just want to watch this segment. It's at the 43-minute mark on Tubi. Okay. If you could get through 43 minutes of it sitting through it, I mean it's it's pretty outrageous. I think it's hilarious, but <laughs> – I'd love to – as a kid, as an adult, we tried watching it, and we're like, oh, this is such an airplane ripoff. So it's a get-smart yeah. motion picture. Yeah, and they were also talking about uh, before we're recording how they piggybacked on uh, Moonraker. They're like borrowing things from uh, the James Bond film Moonraker, <laughs> including this the film, which we both thought was a little strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 the, the film itself is very bizarre. Horrible ratings. It went straight to TV, so we saw it on TV. Uh, so let's talk about this experience. So, what was it like? What do you remember going on the tram at Universal Studios decades ago? What it was like originally when we went? Uh, just uh, and didn't really understand. Okay, you're going on this little tram. It's like what would you describe it as? Like an an open bus, right? That you're on. Yeah, basically. exactly, exactly. And you had to you had to get a pass for a certain time. You didn't just yes, walk up. They to, still right? do that. They still okay. do that. So, yes, we had to go on it. Uh, I don't remember the order of everything, but you do see, like you mentioned, the Psycho House. Uh, to me, one of the coolest things was seeing Jaws pop up. Loved pop it. Up well, right because Jaws to... was super relevant at that time. I think by that time, Jaws 3 might have been out. Uh, yeah, probably, yeah, because it was in 3D, yes. Because yep. we were getting Jaws 3D trading cards. Remember, I had a little pair of 3D glasses in it. Yes. Oh, I love those. And I think we saw Jaws 3D at the Hamden Mart, that cinema. Okay, I really don't remember. To be honest with you. I mean, it was yeah, Jaws was great. Jaws was a big franchise that everyone loved. Our grandparents loved it. Our parents loved it. So it even though they they started getting weaker with the the sequels, it was something that that was totally relevant. That's that's one of the attractions there that stood the test of time was Jaws. Oh yeah, I definitely. Do they still have Jaws there now? Yes, I think that's one of the few remaining things left, I believe, is Jaws. Okay. And, um, and uh, Earthquake, I think, is still there from when we okay. went. Okay. But, uh, but I haven't been there in years, so who knows what's going on now. Now, one of the things the tram did have that was short-lived was a rock slide, okay. which was really curious. And the rock slide would would have boulders rolling down the hill attacking the tram, but unfortunately rocks would fall over and hit people, and so they had to, to cancel that. That was a very short-lived attraction. But the flash flood, is that still there? When I went, it was, yes. Okay, so that's been there for a number of years. The Battlestar Galactica one was the absolute highlight for us. Oh, it blew me away because we didn't – this is – you have to remember – 
we couldn't research things online. Uh, you had to get a specific magazine, you know, like a Starlog, for example, to know what's going on to keep up with everything. So we had no idea that this this was going to happen. You got a map. That's it. You walked in. You got a map. Here you go, kid. Shut up. Get in line. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's pretty much it. And then the tram ride at that time was extremely lengthy. It was so lengthy that you, they had to stop the tram to give you a bathroom break. And then when you stopped the tram to get the bathroom break, it was this land of the giants era where you had all these giant sized props you take pictures with. And that's in the nude bomb. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, is it? Is it? I, it, it must have been a quick scene because I don't remember it's seeing when it. When he first enters, uh, you're going to see uh, yeah, the giant books. One of the giant books is Jaws 2. So you can keep an eye oh, out oh, for that. Oh, I did, yeah, I did see that. I, it, I didn't put it together that that was – that that was the land of the giants era. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah so they, they, you'd stop there, right, and you'd have lunch, go to the bathroom. There was That's a, right. a there was an A team van you could take a picture with. Loved it, and you could pick the van up, right? Yes, it was like on a hydraulic. Now, is that area still there? Uh, no, when I went, there was nothing like that that I saw. Now, see, I got the impression now because Universal Studios is more of a theme park than it is a how to make motion pictures park that they wanted to get rid of anything that takes people away from spending money on big money on stuff because the the old tram ride was i think it was something like two hours long because you were stopping on sound stages walking through sound stages you really understood true movie making you got to be in the actual areas that movies were being made the actual streets i know that they've kind of Got away from all that. Yeah, they, they'll have you on the tram. They'll show you certain areas where movies were filmed, like Back to the Future. They'll show you that if you're yes. on the clock tower. Yes. They still yes. do that. Yep. They'll show you certain villages and areas where there's some of the Universal, like uh, monster films that were made. So they still have that, but you walking around, that they don't really do that. I, yeah, I don't think they want people walking around too much anymore. That That's a thing of the past. So you're on this tram ride, and describe what it was like when you when you start knowing you're in the realm of Battlestar Galactica. Well, you see this uh, this vehicle with a cannon on it that uh, a Cylon uh, Centurion's talking to you, and it shoots out smoke. And I I, I don't know about you, but I was like, this is amazing because I. That's exactly loved. how I felt. I was like, this now we're talking. This yeah, is this was like it was a fun tour. We had fun. You know, Jaws was cool. Everything was fun. Seeing the Psycho House, but once this happened, they're like, oh, this is amazing. Totally, and it didn't stop there. With just you're outdoors at this point. Nearly the entire attraction, you're outdoors. So the tram stops. You're, you're getting interrogated by a Cylon, and then what happens? So then you go inside the Cylon base, and then you have a, uh, a colonial warrior, correct? An actor comes out? Yes, there are actual actors there. Yeah, and in the article, it talks about how they hired 10 actors to play the colonial warriors, and the three were uh, on duty at all times. So they all take turns because it would be too much for one actor to constantly do this. Yes, and I can appreciate that. This is... This article gives us a behind the scenes, the workings of it as well. Whereas when you're on the ride, you don't see 10 actors. It's a staged play. Essentially, it's a staged play. Whereas the Cylons are taking all the tourists hostage and they're trying to free you. 
Yes, and the article mentions that the colonial warrior, the actor, has to be choreographed to coincide with the alien movements and the laser blast. So they have to hit their marks, just like an actor would, for you know, for this experience. Yes. Yep. Good point. And uh, and the Cylons, you know, the Cylons looked incredible. I'm sure you remember. You know, they took that. It says in the article from the actual molds. Oh, you this, could tell the attention yeah. to detail, and they actually made them chrome too. I mean, they yeah. glistened. Everything in there glistened. They had a control room. They did a wonderful job of of making you feel like you were on a Cylon base. Yes, and the Imperial. But the entire time there. you're in this tram, though, you're not moving as far as physically getting off. You're you're, you're locked in the tram. Yes, and the Colonial Warriors, his, you know, he's explained to you how he's going to help you. He's going to save you, and he's shooting at all the Cylons, and they have all these actual lasers going on in there and he and when he shoots a cylon they split in half that was the only thing i thought was weird (laughs) yeah because it wasn't like really it was just like literally just like okay straight split in half it wasn't like a crude (laughs) yes it it wasn't an explosion it's like someone took a laser it's like someone took a lightsaber and sliced them in exactly (laughs) and you could see this perfectly in the nude bomb if you want to see it just like that because all the production values, you can see everything perfectly in there. Yes. Uh, the imperious leader, uh, the, uh, he also speaks. He says the captives will make tasty morsels for our Ovion allies, and they have Ovions in there too. I know, and the Ovions are like popping up. Yes. So they were trying to take as many elements of the show that were alien-looking because look, that's what we love more than anything else, especially was the spaceships and the aliens. And they incorporated a lot of these visual elements into the attraction. Oh, yeah. No, it, it looked incredible. And uh, with the effects, too, in the article saying how the smoke, the smoke system used, this is back in 1979, cost $150,000. You know, and I try to think about it because on that same trip, we went to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing uh, – this this had more of an adult feel to it. This was a true sci-fi experience. Disney at that time, they're not – they weren't the empire they are now. They were strictly fantasy and animation-based. Yes. Obviously, they were, they were venturing out into the black hole. But even at that time, I don't think they did anything black hole based. It took years before they started incorporating Tron and elements like that into Disney. Yeah, they had Tron for the people mover. That's right. Uh, and even that was limited, right? Yes, it was very That's short. It. Yeah, it didn't didn't last very long. It was short lived for a few years. So I think the closest thing that Universal's competitor Disneyland had would be Space Mountain to this. Okay. That that you know that had some kind of sci-fi element because the world of science fiction didn't have any representation at amusement parks. Yeah, the only thing I could think of, but I don't know if this was all the the uh, mission to Mars. That's right. That's yeah. I could I could see that. I could see that. That's and, more science based, right? I see that's more science based. based. Yeah, I mean that was that was a fun attraction, but I was really trying to think about it. this. Is the only time I could think of an intellectual property. Was used as a focal point in an attraction at an amusement park yeah, in, in the realm of science fiction. Yeah, that they also and they they dumped a lot of money into this, you know. So they were really yes. heavily betting on the popularity of Battlestar Galactica, which, if you grew up at that time, it it was a huge thing. 
It was short lived, but it was huge at the time. That was the closest thing we could ever get to watching Star Wars on TV. That's the best way I could describe it because there's nothing else that had production values like that. And they even the average person the same... did not have a VCR. The, yes. I, I never even knew VCRs existed at this time. Oh, yeah. And the, the, if you did, the tapes back then were $100 each. It was like standard retail. Uh, but also, yeah, for, like you're saying, it was like Star Wars on television. They had some of the same crew. Uh, yes. and John Dykstra did uh, special effects. So it was really, really top notch. Even Mark Mark Hamill in a previous Star Law called John Dykstra a traitor because he jumped off of Star Wars to jump on Battlestar Galactica. Yes, I know there was legal issues. I know at the time, but uh, but yeah, no, it, it was great. It was a great television show. Uh, the attraction was great. Uh, if you want to, uh, since we're talking about how you can see a lot of this in the nude bomb, we could talk a little bit more about the the Glenn Larson ties to this. Yeah, please. Okay, so. Oh wait, another thing that it was interesting about this ride is that the fact that in in the dialogue, because it's a story, it's not like you're just going through and seeing things. There's a story. And and the imperious leader and his minions are telling everyone that they're going to be fed to the Ovions. Yes. And that's and that's and that's why the colonial warriors have to save us. Because we're gonna be eaten. Like even yes. they put a lot of thought into this attraction not just visually but the story element wise it was like it, it was you were literally feeling it was like role playing you were involved in, in this yes uh almost like what uh disney wants to do now with the the star wars attractions and their their hotel that they want to do uh, an experience like that can you imagine if Balsar galactica went on more seasons and it got to the point where there'd be a Balsar galactica hotel Oh, that would be phenomenal. <laughs> you could hang out with Dirk Benedict, too. Maybe he'd pop in. People smoking cigars. So if you want, I could tell you a little bit about the, the ties between, since this is in the nude bomb, uh, this, uh, the Battle of You know, we're Galactica. mentioning nude bomb a lot. And it's like you, you have to watch. If you're a fan of classic cinema, sci-fi, spy movies, as bad as this movie is, it does have quite a few references. Here's the Glenn Larson ties to the nude bomb. Glenn Larson uh, created Battlestar Galactica. The actress Sarah Rush, who played Rigel in Battlestar Galactica, was in the nude bomb as Dr. Pam Crovney. Uh, Pamela Hensley, who played Princess Ardala in Buck Rogers in the 25th century, played Agent 36. That was amazing. As soon as her I'm name sure got on her the credits, we were right? excited about it. Uh, this is another one. I only remember this because years ago uh, there was a prop and costume auction, and they mentioned this in the auction. Um, the red costume the villain Norman St. Savage is wearing in the nude bomb was also used in Season 2, Episode 3 of Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Journey to Oasis Part 1, the character Len Berman is wearing it. And there are a lot of recycled parts in Buck Rogers from – Balser Galactica. Yeah, so that's that's what I find interesting about. So you can see that's one of the focal points of the nude bomb is uh, mm -hmm. the fabric for this uh, costume, and that's mm -hmm. in a Buck Rogers episode, which I, I just found very interesting. Yeah. So in retrospect, if they were ever to bring back something like this at Universal Studios, do you think it would resonate with modern day audiences? Depending on what the property is, yes, because uh, I could tell you firsthand how 
Harry Potter is a huge, huge hit. So if you get that's relevant, it's relevant now. Yeah, they have to keep and I get it. They have to keep up to the times and they're not in business for people like us. No, no, and and I'm not really a huge Harry Potter fan, but it is amazing the work they put into it, and you actually feel like you're in the movie when you go there. So, if they had something like a, a, a sci-fi property that was popular, what if they had the, the reboot Battlestar Galactica on the tram ride like this? Do you think it would work? Well, not now. If you had a time <laughs> back when it was relevant, sure. Now, no, it, it wouldn't work. All right, let's just wrap up by talking during that time period. What were some of your fondest memories of Battlestar Galactica? I mean, just I mean, the Cylons, just everything about the Cylons were the thing that drew me to the show. I'd say personally, just visually, uh, their voice. There's no doubt about not only the voice, but that eye moving back and forth. Yeah. So um, I love the episode Red Eye. Red Eye is a good one. Uh, Nayar and Kavura uh, aren't really big fans of it, but I suggest everyone <laughs> check out that episode. It's like a Western episode, but I I think it's one of the better ones personally. And I remember you that on the back of comic books there would be ads to send away for a golden Cylon, and you would just stare at that ad. You wanted oh. that golden Cylon so bad because you loved the Bowser Galactica action figures. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, that was a big deal. And they also had, uh, I'm sure they're in uh, some of your Star Logs, the jackets you could buy, the Colonial Warrior jackets. I also wanted oh one God, of those. I want that. I, for whatever reason, I remember we were sitting in Burger King reading Star Log, and I was looking <laughs> at that ad, and I was just thinking to myself, wouldn't it be so great? Because the ad had a family of four wearing those Battlestar Galactica jackets. And I just remember, wouldn't it be great if we were all just sitting here with Battlestar Galactica jackets? And I remember asking our father, I said, hey, what do you think about getting a jacket like this? He goes, that's stupid. Like all he wore was sports clothes. You know what I mean? Starter jackets and stuff like that. There's no possible way he was ever going to wear a Battlestar Galactica jacket. And why I remember reading Starlog at Burger King and bringing that up to him at that time, I don't know. But it stuck with me like, oh. It's not it's not it's not a Red Sox jacket, it's not a Celtics jacket. That's stupid. That's pretty much True. pretty much the answer. But he did make a compromise. If you do remember, we all as a family wore Dick Tracy T-shirts <laughs> with a giant ticket stub on it to get uh, admission into the opening night uh, for Dick Tracy in 1990. So, so we're similar to that family. The Battlestar Galactica family, the Colonial Warrior jackets, but we just had Dick Tracy shirts. So that's that's because mom and dad like that Dick Tracy cartoon. Yes, they love prune face. Prune face and flat top, yeah. But when it came to when it came to science fiction, it was a big no no. Except our our father loved Galactica 1980, the episode uh, with Wolfman Jack. Again, it had a a reference to some oldies thing. Everything had to do with the reason why he liked it, right? And he couldn't stop laughing at the Cylon walking into the Halloween party. Yes. Yeah, he hated Star Wars. He liked Star Trek. And Battlestar Galactic was pretty good. Are you on the hunt for rare collectibles? Do you have old toys gathering dust in your attic? 
then come on down to IC Toys, 526 East Irish Drive in Nashville, Tennessee. No collection too big or too small, we buy it all. We also sell toys and collectibles from Star Wars, MOTU, TMNT, Legos, we even have lightsabers. Come on down to 526 East Irish Drive and check out some really awesome collectibles at IC Toys Nashville. Future conventions. Hey, let's talk about some of the conventions that were being planned for 1979. Creation Chicago in Chicago, Illinois, September 29th through 30th. Encounter 3. That's in Wichita, Kansas, October 13th through 14th. Acadian Con, Brucer, Louisiana, October 26th through 28th. Future Con, that's in Pendleton, South Carolina, October 27th through 28th. Novacon 9 West, Albany, New York, November 2nd through 4th. Icon, Iowa City, Iowa, November 9th through 11th. Future Party, Albany, New York, November 22nd through 25th. Ultracon, Detroit, Michigan, November 22nd through 25th. Wonder Woman, out of circulation but destined for syndication. So, Wonder Woman, or The New Adventures of Wonder Woman, will not return for the new TV season. A victim of the Nielsen ratings. I can't imagine that this show was dropping out because of ratings. It was one of my top shows of the time. Yeah, definitely for me, too. And I was, yeah, I was sad when I heard it got canceled. This article breaks down the history of the TV show and how the casting was perfect. There are so many things about the show that were perfect. They were even reasonable enough to change the format because they wanted to make it more relevant. Remember the first season of Wonder Woman? It was really based in World War II. Yeah, it stuck closer to the the comic books, mm-hmm. and then and then I love when they modernized it and made it um, in the current time. I liked it that way much better as well, and they even had a backstory for Steve Trevor. They wanted to use the same actor. So how did they get around that? They said it was his son. Which was excellent. I love Lyle Wagner. I loved him on the Carol Burnett show as well. Oh, I did too. Yeah, a completely different uh, style of acting. <laughs> yeah. But we look at Wonder Woman or Linda Carter. I mean, she was amazing as a person. She's very obviously very beautiful, but very talented as well. She's known as a dancer and a singer. Yeah, she's the one who who made up the Wonder Woman spin. She she said that she could spin because she was a dancer, so she did that because that wasn't in the comics. That was not in the comics, and that has become iconic with the Wonder Woman character now. Even many of the comics have adapted that in there because so many fans grew up watching Linda Carter as Wonder Woman. And she was really perfect in that part because she could play the the sweet person with the beautiful smile, and she could be tough when she had to. Yes. It does mention, now here we go again. Starlog's giving us some insight of how shows are lined up and how it could either make a show or break a show. One of the challenges with Wonder Woman is that it was up against Donnie and Marie. Yeah, another show that I liked. <laughs> But, but I mean, I still watched Wonder Woman if, if they were on at the same time. But yeah, they were, they were kind of, uh, for the same audience just because, because they were for little girls like me who yeah. loved the, the glitz and glamour of TV. Totally. And that's one of the challenges of television of yesteryear 
is that you had to make a choice. Most households had one television. If you had two televisions, that usually meant that one would be in either the parents' bedroom or a den. There was some other family member watching it. There was no such thing as, I'm going to watch it later or watch it on a repeat or I'll record it. The average person didn't have a VCR. I mean, it was it was so frustrating at times. Yeah, back then you had to watch the show when it was on or catch it during the the reruns. And you but, were waiting yeah. if it was reruns. I, you I were know. really waiting. <laughs> So, so, yeah, kids today, boy, they'll never know. <laughs> the <laughs> like pain you, now we you went can, through. <laughs> you can just stream it or, or you know, or DVR and watch it later. Yeah. It does say that Linda Carter does have a promising career because she has scored with her Las Vegas nightclub act and her first record album and appears for even more success in pop music. And that never really happened. But, but, I mean, but she does do concert tours. I mean, but she's sort of a, she's more, more low key in, in that now. But yeah, she did those, as this mentions, they, they contracted her to do some TV specials that were musical variety shows. And I watched all of those. I loved them. They were, they were just, she's so huge. versatile. She, she was a really a wonderful singer. Mm-hmm. And, and she did so many costumes. Oh, it was so great. They had the costumes and the sets for those shows. They actually spent money on those. Yes. Yeah, totally. She's I I have to say of the movie that came out Wonder Woman 84, she was the best part of the movie when she showed up in the end credits. She was, which doesn't <laughs> say much for that movie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we both when she showed up and she said I've been doing this for a long time, we were both aghast. <gasps> yeah, it <laughs> Yeah, it was amazing. So it's amazing to see her return as Wonder Woman and we hope to see more of her. Presenting the world's greatest Mego heroes. Mego's new line of 14-inch figures. The world's mightiest mortal, Shazam! 14-inch Mego figures. Gotham's Dark Knight, it's Batman! 14-inch Mego figures. Here's the Man of Steel, Superman! 14-inch Mego figure. 24 points of articulation. Multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. The incredible Lou Ferrigno, the Hulk, speaks. Now, this was one of my childhood heroes. I loved Friday nights watching back-to-back Dukes of Hazard and the Incredible Hulk. Oh, yeah, definitely a memorable night. You watched both shows too. I did. I did. Now, now, now you I growing remember. up in South Georgia, though, was the Dukes of Hazard like more iconic for you? Was yeah, it, it more relatable? Was. I think it was. Yeah, just well, just because it was a fun show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, it, it was pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, that's what. When I think of the Incredible Hulk, I think of the excitement of of Friday nights, and Lou Ferrigno totally made that show. I always looked up to him. I, I just thought he was amazing. And the article talked about his story as well. Because, yes, he's a bodybuilder. He's a big guy, six foot five. I mean, we've met him numerous times in real life. Even as a senior citizen, Lou's huge. He is. And, and he's still in shape, too. Incredible. At his age. So, so, but he still, um, does the convention circuit. Yeah, he, he always does. And he's a nice guy. Um, now, now really for me, the show, I mean, I was more a Bill Bixby fan. Okay. But I mean, but, but yeah, it was, 
It was always a great show. And, the show and had Lou heart. Ferrigno is, is wonderful. Yeah. It's amazing because we know that Lou has hearing issues. Yes. It mentioned that since childhood, six years old, he has lost 30%, 60% of his hearing. And so he learned to lip read and he speaks with an impediment. And yes. that's what got him into bodybuilding. It mentions also the movie Pumping Iron, which we've seen. Yeah, great movie. Well, it's funny. This article said something like he he acted in that movie, which I thought was funny that the writer said it that way. I mean, the movie was supposed to be more a reality show with no acting. Yeah. But they're saying that he was he was an actor in it. Yeah. Yep. It's now see growing up in Hamden, Connecticut. That's where Mike Katz's gym was. So I used to see Mike Katz all the time. You want to talk about someone that's huge. Man, this guy was built like a tank. That's the difference between bodybuilders. When when you're in an arena where you see them all the time, you realize there's different forms. Like one of my favorites of all time is Arnold Schwarzenegger. I love Arnold. Yes. Arnold is considered a perfect form. Whereas some guys, they're chest heavy, right? They're bulkier. To this day, when you see Lou Ferrigno, he's just a big guy. He's not like lean muscle. He is. He truly is a, a, a being to behold. I can't imagine him in his prime, like seeing him in real life. He truly must have been hulking. It, he must have been, yeah. And that's why um, it, it was actually said that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger recommended Lou Ferrigno for this part of the whole. Because Arnold's on the smaller side. People don't realize that. Arnold's not a tall guy. He's on the taller side. Lou is huge. Right. Lou is a bigger guy, yeah. And Lou also had ideas for the show, but the producers never listened to him. Oh, that's kind of sad, too. Yeah, yeah. this interview makes him sound really intelligent, which, and, and he is. We've seen him in person. But this Super was, intelligent, sure. Yeah, yeah, so it's a shame they, they didn't take his ideas. He wanted to have speaking parts. He wanted to have limited lines, just like the comic book. He He would refer to the comic books as the source material, whereas the show's producers did not want to lean on the comics. I do remember one time Stan Lee said that the Hulk in the in the comics, you know, the way he spoke was very um like 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 a child, not really using good English, and he said that wouldn't translate well to TV. So see, I was thinking yeah. like the original Frankenstein, uh-huh. like limited grunts. Even Lou says we should have had some scenes where he was with children. Yeah, that would have been neat. But we know what happened yeah. with Frankenstein. Right, right yeah. <laughs> and and I guess, well, they didn't want to repeat Frankenstein. I mean, because you've got another green monster here. So yes. you don't want them to be too similar. And all the things that Lou is bringing up is that, you know, Lou, uh, he's quoted by saying, the Hulk should have been more caveman-like or Neanderthal-like. We should have changed his prosthetics more. I mean, Lou had ideas, but he said he wanted to do more with forehead prosthetics. What you're saying is is right. Lou wanted to change this character into a Frankenstein's monster. In some ways, he must have envisioned it being that way, more like Frankenstein. Yeah. But the way they did it, though, was was still great, and the show lasted a long time. Absolutely, and it had something for everyone. That was truly a family show. I would watch it with my mother. She And she was a Bill, big Bill Bixby fan back with the courtship of Eddie's father. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it totally makes sense, the the format that they were going for. And in a modern-day rewatch, the show 
still stands up to the test of time. The storylines are amazing. Well, this was the only genre show that uh, that my parents actually watched. I mean, I I used to watch this with my parents. Okay, did your parents watch Wonder Woman with you? Um, yeah, they did sometimes. But but, but, but this was since, more story oriented, where they could yeah. enjoy it more, right? Yeah, th- yeah, this one w- was more for um for what we would say ordinary people. Yes, because I because agree. that's kind of what what Bruce Banner was. Now he does say something here that we as kids have argued all the time. Lou says the show is entitled The Incredible Hulk. There should be more of a presence of the Incredible Hulk in the show. Yeah, he was more of a side character, and and it, it well, it's understandable that Lou would want to be more of the star. But as a kid. You'd be like, okay, I'm playing with my Mego dolls, I'm playing with the Hulk and Spider-Man, and okay, Bill Bixby's on. But then as soon as his eyes turn green, I was like, oh no, here it comes. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You know, kids, you know what's was, happening now? It was all now. about that, the oh, Hulk. It yeah. was all about that, absolutely. But I mean, when you think about it, like, like Wonder Woman, you know, you know, there's Wonder Woman and Diana Prince, and... I think Diana Prince was still in more scenes. Wonder Woman was just there to show you up know, to save the now day. Now that you're saying it, I think the format for Wonder Woman was the same as The Incredible Hulk, which is they showed up three times. Mm-hmm. On average, the superhero showed up three times in the show. Yeah, it's like don't roughly, overdo roughly it, every you know? fifteen minutes. Be- because you've got the um, the the one that's the, that's the secret identity is is more driving the show. They're the yes. ones that get into a situation and then have to be saved. And it then it, yeah it becomes too much of a trope if they get saved all the time so it's little a little bit you know? yeah yeah okay now when you were a kid you dressed up as Wonder Woman yeah for Halloween I had a Wonder Woman costume I'll tell you what my mother would give us old clothes my brother and I and she'd shred the bottoms and make shorts out of jeans and then shred the tops and then we would play the Incredible Hulk. Like breaking out of our clothes, ripping our clothes. And you off did that and while like you were that. watching the show. We would wrestle while watching the show. We wrestled while <laughs> yeah. watching every show. Yeah, especially the Batman show, because we'd watch Batman back and back to back with Star Trek, and those Batman fight scenes. We were killing each other. Oh yeah, but okay. that's what boys great do. Fun. Yeah, well, great boys fun wrestle for kids. while they're watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting now. Lou will give his like he gives honest opinions too, like. Saying like Wonder Woman was a terrible show. I mean, that's how he felt he's about totally, it. He's totally ripping up Wonder Woman in this article. <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, I understand some of it because when, you know, I loved it as a little girl. But when I watched it when I was older, I saw how shallow it was. Yeah, you know, it it's, really is. It's not as much. I'll tell you what. Adults. As an adult, it's all eye candy for me. Right. It's yeah. I mean, there's very little story <laughs> to the Wonder Woman. There's some episodes that are pretty decent though. Yeah, some of it was. I mean, okay, that that but... one where she went to the science fiction convention was fantastic. And and we enjoy that for for other reasons yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, uh, but this show, The Incredible Hulk, stands the test of time. And Lou says he hopes to do more acting jobs afterwards. Yes, he said he plans on the show being on longer, which it had. Incredible Hulk was a fairly long running show. Yeah, it was very successful. Now the thing is, as far as Lou, he didn't get that many acting jobs. No. But but he still stayed famous. He still stayed in the limelight. Yes, and he says he has his own studio or his own fitness center. And we know that years later, he ended up becoming a personal trainer, even for Michael Jackson. So, I he mean, did. Lou... He still stayed busy, yeah. Always stayed busy. And he is a mainstay on the convention scene, which blows my mind that he's as active at conventions as he is. Overall, when we look at this magazine, I have to say, if there was 
one issue of Starlog that epitomized my childhood, it is this, issue number 28. Buck Rogers, Balsar Galactica, Wonder Woman, The Incredible Hulk. This is it. I mean, this this is it in in one magazine. This was an amazing issue. It was. Issue. It was everything for that year. It, yeah. Such an awesome year for TV and for, for kids who like uh, sci-fi and fantasy. All right. We always wrap up by looking at an advertisement in Starlog and analyzing it. Are we spoke about this previously, my brother and I, in the segment earlier. This is the advertisement for the Warriors Battle Jacket. And I'm realizing it now that this is not an officially licensed Battlestar Galactica product. It shows a family of four, a husband and wife, two children, wearing what look to be Colonial Viper jackets. The Warriors Battle Jacket, available in sizes for the entire family to enjoy. At last, you can dress in futuristic military style with the high-quality Warriors Battle Jacket. Made of rugged 100% cotton denim, the Warriors Battle Jacket is light olive brown in color and comes complete with all the trimmings, decorative emblem, realistic insignia pins, and locking metal clasps. It's made to be machine washable and dried. So essentially, it's a jean jacket, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's it sounds denim, like it. Right? It's a yeah. brown denim jacket, so it's a jean jacket, and it's making a big deal about clasps. That's like advertising a jacket saying, and it includes buttons and zippers to to, <laughs> to, to conceal yourself. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, but, but it had clasps on the show. They're trying so to say that it has it. like the clasps that look like the show, but they're very strategic in not saying just like the show. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because this is not a Balsar Galactica jacket. This is a warrior's jacket. Whether wearing your warrior's battle jacket to school or bringing it along rocket ship rides to faraway places, it's fun to dress in space fashion. The whole family can dress in warrior battle jackets. Choose from a variety of sizes on the order form below. Suitable for most every occasion. Day-to-day recreational use disco wear. Halloween makes a great Christmas gift. Tell you what, if I was old enough to go to discotheques at the time, I don't think I'd be wearing a Colonial Warriors battle jacket. Well, no, maybe not I to would. A disco. If if I was trying to pick you up, though, would would you think I'm cool? I would. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here it is. Order the Warriors battle jacket today from the Starlog Trading Post. Interesting. This was a Starlog produced item. Children's. Are twenty five ninety nine, big boys thirty one ninety nine, women's thirty seven ninety nine, and men's at forty one ninety nine. That was pretty expensive for back then. Okay, so let, let's see what would what would that cost in today's money? So for the children's jacket that was priced in nineteen seventy nine at thirty one ninety nine in today's money that would be a hundred and twenty one dollars. Wow. No possible way my parents are going to spend $120 on a jean jacket. <laughs> I mean, really, it couldn't have cost that much to make. Okay, the adult jacket, let's say the the women's one was $37.99. In today's money, if we were to order this from Starlog Magazine, it would cost us $144 to buy you this jacket. And for me, it would cost 
$159. So, so yeah, that, that's a lot. And it doesn't seem like it should cost that much for what it is. I know, it's not even official. Go figure that out. It, my whole life I thought it was official too. The, the, the picture makes you think it's a true Balsar Galactica jacket, but it's a knockoff. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Yeah.